Take out your Bible, turn over to Colossians chapter 2 as we begin a new series. An interesting series. We're going to start out with some topical preaching and spend a lot of time in expository later on. But to set the stage, we're going to talk about having a kingdom focus. And we'll talk about that here in the introduction in just a moment. But Colossians chapter 2, I encourage you to take out your notes as well. Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 6. Thank you for the lights. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul's the writer. He says, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And may God be blessed by the reading of his word this morning. Well, one of my favorite books that I read in junior high, The Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens starts out like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We're all going direct to heaven, and we're all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or for evil, in a superlative degree of comparison only. One of the critiques of Charles Dickens, he's a very wordy person, as you can tell, <laughs> in that phrase. This phrase points out a major conflict between family and love, hatred and oppression, good and evil, and wisdom and folly. And he begins his tale of the vision that human prosperity cannot be matched with human despair. He, in fact, talks about the class warfare between the rich and the poor. He tells of a time of despair and suffering on one hand and joy and hope on the other. This is an apt phrase to be used even in the context of today's world, when on the one hand we see the rich are enjoying a luxurious life, while on the other hand we see the poor around the world and in our country struggling under the yoke of economic decline. In this book, one country is compared to another, France to England. It's a story about a French doctor who is very wealthy. He's in prison in the Bastille in Paris, and he's there for 18 years, and then he's finally released. And then he goes on to live with his daughter in London just before the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror begins. God has placed you and I in this time of history for a reason. We're to stand strong and persevere as the times change quickly and dramatically all around us. We see some great changes in technology. Um, on Friday, I participated in, a, in a, a Zoom call with our Converge North Central, our district. And we had the privilege through technology to vote in Mark Bajorlo, the new district executive minister for Converge North Central. We didn't all have to get in our cars and drive up to Minneapolis and meet together as delegates. We, had, we could do it on Zoom, and I'm sure we had a lot more people that participated in that way. And we have a lot of good things going on in this world that we have because of 
the things we're learning and growing in and inventing for ourselves. But some bad changes is that we also are moving away by worshiping the creation more than the creator. And I want to share my heart today as we begin a series that will take us into next year called Kingdom Focus. We'll begin several messages on how a Christian should think. What is our perspective? Where do we begin? Because as we think, so we do. Then we're going to look at our home in heaven. We're going to spend several weeks just looking and reflecting on heaven, where we're going to go for all eternity if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, what you can expect, what you can look forward to, and what you can live for here on this planet as well. Then we'll do a verse-by-verse expository study through First and Second Peter as we learn how to thrive and live strong in this ever-darkening world. You know, I believe we live in an amoral, illogical, morally relative world. Amoral, where your sexual orientation, gender identity is up for grabs according to the world and character is being diminished. Illogical. I believe God is about order. And we're seeing more and more chaos. We're seeing contradictory things happening even in our uh, politics in our country. And we can't make sense of it. Some think we're headed back to the times of Denzel Washington, the Book of Eli, if you've seen that movie, uh, where anarchy reigned in the world. So amoral, illogical, and moral relative. There's no absolute truth. Your truth is as good as the next person's truth, the world would say. We have to be tolerant of one another. And I like what Webster's Dictionary defines truth as. Truth is defined as fidelity to the original. Fidelity to the original. You know, if you go online and you buy an out-of-market uh, part for your car, they have to take the specifications from the original manufacturer in order to make that part work well, to be true to the original. So it'll work. There has to be truth in order for there to be good and evil or any comparison we could come up with. Now, this is a two-liter bottle of pop. Everybody would verify that, right? Even in Australia, this is a two-liter bottle of pop, right? Even in, uh, let's see, nobody from the Philippines, India. Oh, yeah, we got people here. So, you know, I've been to Brazil several times. I've been to Mexico. I've been to Canada. And everywhere I go, a two-liter bottle looks like this. And why is that? Well, because there's a small town outside the city of Paris, and it is the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. And there, they decided what two liters of pop looks like. So when you go somewhere around the world, it should look just like this because it's fidelity to the original. It's the truth. You know, Elizabeth runs cross-country for Hawkeye, right, community college. If she decided that a 1,500-meter race race was 1,440 meters and she stopped and proclaimed she was the winner, what would they do? They wouldn't think that was right because there are precise things in this world that are true to the original, okay? And so we need to understand that. And while we know that scientifically, we live that out, it's also true based on the word of God. God has created a universe. He revealed how he created it in the book of Genesis and how it's to run through science and scripture. While many people believe we're evolving in our thinking and that the idea of God is a relic in the past for some, Jesse Ventura, that great wrestling uh, person who also became the governor of Minnesota, I always think about his quote that God is merely a crutch for weak people. That's how he, he viewed it. 
But we, on the other hand, we need as Christians to learn that we need a supernatural God, that, that we're not living in this man-centered idea as this world is, that the world is looking at us as man. We don't need a God. We don't need the miraculous. We can become God. We can build experience into our lives to become superhuman. But as Christians, we need to learn how to know the truth, discern the truth, and apply the truth to our lives and stay true to the truth, and very importantly, share that truth with other people. It's not enough for us to know the truth and isolate ourselves away so we only listen to the things in our echo chamber that we want to hear. That's important. As we're going to see in a moment, we need to control our mind. We need to put the things in that are important. But we also need to know enough of what's going on in the world around us, the man-centered world, secular humanism, so we can engage that culture and show them the truth, the way back, how they can come to faith in Christ. And so you and I, too many times, if we're honest, you know, we, we, we do everything we can and we're just happy to get to church on Sunday. And if you have kids, you know what it's like. Just be able to get here and sit. That's important. And it's also important that we have times to build ourselves up through Bible study fellowship, through community Bible study, through, uh, you know, Hyacinth and Torah Club and connect groups and all these things. And we continue to take these things in and we, we're like a sponge and we take up this knowledge. But guess what? God wants us at some point to wring out that knowledge, to use that knowledge in application as we share it with other people as well. That's the purpose of gaining the biblical knowledge and growing in our faith is that we in turn share it with others, to be a conduit with other people and sharing that relationship and that experience that we have in Christ. It's a great book. I laugh because I haven't read it, but I want to read it. I encourage you to read it. It's called Outside the Salt Shaker and Into the World by Rebecca Pippert. It's a really old book, but the idea is we're in the world, but we're not of the world, as Jesus said. William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, said this very interesting statement about the church. The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. Think about that. We're always to be about looking out how we can bring other people in. We're not just focused on the membership. We have to take our spiritual resources, be on mission in our church and outside of our church. So we begin with how should a Christian think? As I stated in the introduction, how we view ourselves, what we think, we become. And we start with the battle of the mind. And think about it, the one who controls our mind, whether that's God, whether it's our selfish desires, or whether it's Satan, that's who's going to win the battle of who we will become. Our behavior, for the most part, if not altogether, starts with how we think. So we start the beginning of our thought processes. It must begin and end with God. So some basic things, things that we've already talked about, but just to be mindful of, that these are benchmarks where we begin and how we begin our thought process. First of all, in your outline, the purpose for our lives here on earth is to glorify God. A few weeks ago, we went into some detail on this. I just give you a bunch of verses to take home and Study for yourself. It says in the first thing we need to do is to glorify God, and the Westminster Short Catechism says this, what is the chief end of man? 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's where John Piper gets this idea of Christian hedonism when he talks about that. That when we are in relationship with God, when we're obeying him, when we're becoming all that Jesus wants us to be, that's when we're the most filled with happiness and joy in our lives. And Ecclesiastes 12:13 says this, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now what's significant about that verse is who wrote it? Solomon. You remember he was considered the wisest man and king in all the world because he asked God for wisdom and because he asked for wisdom, God gave him fame, power, money, but wisdom. And if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a story of a man who was seeking for the purpose in life. And because he had all the riches at his disposal, he tried everything. And at the end of his book of Ecclesiastes, he comes to what was most important, despite all the things he tried, is to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 1 Peter 4.11 says, whoever speaks... As one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This brings the meaning of our life and the purpose of our lives into focus. Our purpose in life is wrapped up in knowing who we are in Christ growing deeply in that relationship and walking in obedience to what God tells us and prompts us to do. And this is how we glorify God. A synonym of glorify is magnify, to bring to a bigger state, honor, to pay homage to and worship, fear, to show reverence and respect to. And so not only are we to glorify God, but the second purpose of this life is Number two, the subpoint there, to pledge our allegiance to God's kingdom. Now that's easy on the surface, hard to do. Sometimes when we pledge our allegiance to God and his kingdom, it affects relationships in our family. It affects decisions we're going to make about our finances. It's going to affect everything about our life. And are we paying and pledging our allegiance to his kingdom? Matthew 6.33 but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And here's the promise. And all things, all these things will be added to you. You see, we have to sacrifice the comforts that we have at times in our life. We have to do things that we don't always want to do. We have to serve people at times we may not want to serve or be comfortable serving. We have to allow God to wring out the sponge sometimes and be spent in his service. We're called to share our knowledge of the word and, importantly, our experience with God as we use our spiritual gifts. Don't ever underestimate your testimony, your experience with God. It's powerful. It's changed people who were involved in cults and brought them out. Sharing what God has done in your life is something indisputable because you've experienced it. But we're talking obedience. Here's a great book you want to write down and maybe read. I've read this book numerous times by Eugene Peterson, the writer of the message, a long obedience in the same direction. 
a long obedience in the same direction. And he walks you through various psalms. And he reminds you what the journey is all about. A long obedience in the same direction. And if we're honest, most of Christianity and God's teaching are easy to understand, but hard for us to execute sometimes in our life. Sometimes we have to serve, as I said, when we don't want to. Sometimes we have to swallow our pride. Sometimes we have to live a humble life and deny ourselves. And it's not natural for us as humans, especially here in America. Thirdly, we are to fulfill God's will by being who God created us to be. To fulfill God's will by being who God created us to be. That's the most, one of the most beautiful things about Christianity is that each one of us in this room and around the world are uniquely made. There is no one else like us. When God made you, he broke the mold. There won't be anyone like you. And so you have a unique opportunity that no one else has. And we take that to mean that that brings the meaning and purpose in our life, to live for the glory of God, to stay focused on God's kingdom as we go through life. And we live out in our behavior who God made us to be. Isaiah 43, 5 says, Fear not, for I am with you, God says. Two verses later, he says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, it's interesting that Steve Moore wrote this interesting observation as he went to a retirement home dedication ceremony. And he came across one of the new residents, and his name is Dr. Paul Brandt. And as he came there and he began to speak, he said this, I remember well when I was at my physical peak, Dr. Brand said, I was 27 years old, had just finished medical school. A group of friends and I were mountain climbing and we could climb for hours. For some people, when they cross that peak, for them, life is over. I remember well my mental peak too. I was 57 years of age and was performing groundbreaking hand surgery. All of my medical training was coming together in one place. For some people, when they cross this peak, for them, life is over. But he says, as I move into this facility, I'm now 80, over 80 years old. I recently realize I'm approaching another peak, my spiritual peak. All I have sought to become is a person who has the opportunity to come together in wisdom, maturity, kindness, love, joy, and peace. And I realize when I cross that peak for me, life will not be over. It will have just begun. It will have just begun. As he thinks of eternity and looking at things from the eternal perspective. So I beg you in this room, never ever underestimate how fearfully and wonderfully made you are that only you will be able to impact certain lives in this life that no one else will be able to touch. Think about your sphere of relationships, the influence you have with them, your personality, your spiritual gifts and talents, your availability to God that he can use them however he desires. We have to think on these things. So the application here is may these truths be what we are committed to in our life. May these truths be what we're committed to, to glorify God, to understand that we're uniquely made in his image, to pledge our allegiance to God and his kingdom in eternity. So let's look at the problem of being influenced in our thinking by the world before we talk about some ideas on how to think like God and Christ. The problem with thinking as the world, the flesh, and the devil would have us think. 
And I gotta be honest, I battle with these things that we're about to talk about and more. It's easy to allow the world's thoughts to creep into our lives. I see it in my life, things I have to battle. I see it in other people's lives who are Christians. It's easy to go with the flow of the way society and the way things are being taught. The first thing we'll look at is pragmatism, efficiency. Pragmatism is practical, doing what works. If it works, it must be right. There's a subtle temptation that encourage Christians to be practical. That is, they try to do God's work in man's way. Getting results becomes the primary focus. Don't be led away by this world's reasoning. The world tries to convince you that as long as you can accomplish something for the kingdom of God, that's all that matters. Now think about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They were trying to do a good thing. They were giving an offering to the church. But they did it deceitfully and God judged them immediately, not for what they did, but how they did it. Their motive. Their attitude toward it. Think about it. Satan tried to trap Jesus into this same temptation. Satan did not question the worthiness of Jesus' task to die for the world's sin, to redeem it, but simply offered a practical solution to accomplish Jesus' goal more quickly, and here's the key, at a lesser cost. Follow me, Satan said, and I will give you the entire kingdoms of the world, right? God's ways are not like man's ways. In Isaiah 55, as we often said, efficiency from man's perspective is not prized by God. It did not seem efficient to have the children of Israel march around Jericho 13 times and then play their horns and shout, but that's what it took for the walls to come down in Joshua 6. It did not appear wise to select the youngest of Jesse's sons to become the next king. But God took the youngest of Jesse's sons because he saw that he was a man after God's own heart, that he saw the heart of man and he looked into the heart of men to make his decision. At first glance, it didn't seem logical for Jesus, after a night of prayer, to pick the 12 disciples, these uneducated, many of them fishermen, one was a tax collector. You would have thought this wouldn't have been the cream of the crop to choose to send the gospel down to where it is even to today. But that's who God chose, those 12 disciples. It's never wise to attempt to do God's work in man's ways. It's an old, age-old temptation that seems to make sense on the surface, but often is set at variance at the purposes of God. Another one that we buy into, and you're looking at the primary one here, the primary sinner, is success and results. We think God is most pleased with our results, right? We got to work at this thing, and we have to battle in our hearts that this isn't a performance-based religion that we're a part of. God is more interested in our relation to him than our results. He's more interested in our being faithful to what he has called us to do than what we think God wants us to do. So we remain faithful, but God takes care of the results. In Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. He gives one guy five, he gives one guy two, and he gives one guy one. The one that had five, he went and he invested it and he multiplied it and it became ten. The guy that had two did the same thing. He invested and doubled the investment to four. And the one, he buried it, as you know, in the ground because he knew that the taskmaster was hard and he was hoarding it and he was afraid to take the risk. And what happens in the end? God rewards. He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
the two guys that multiplied their money. And he took the one from the one who hoarded it and hid it away. It's not the amount, notice in the story, it's not the amount that matters to God, but our faithfulness and perseverance to the end that God will reward. So we need to change our thinking on this. It changes our perspective on how we live the Christian life. It's not a performance-based life, but works flow out for God from us because of the love and grace that God has shown to us. And I can assure you that God loves you unconditionally as much now as he ever did and ever will into eternity. Don't forget that. Thirdly, in this one, you need to star and underline and circle. The end justifies the means. This is what we see so much in our culture today. Character, showing honor, dignity, and thinking of others before ourselves, that's looked down upon. Good character is attacked. No good deed seems to go unpunished these days. It almost seems that we as Christ followers believe also that the ends justify the means. Don't be led away by that world's reasoning. An examination of God's word shows us that the means are sometimes more important than its results. Let me say that again. Sometimes if you read the Bible, the means could be more important than the results. People are judged for how they did things sometimes more than what they did. Sometimes God judges people on what they should do but didn't. Think in 2 Samuel 13. David, mighty King David, his daughter and Absalom's sister Tamar was raped by her half-brother, Amon. And when David discovered the heinous act, he was furious. But notice in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 13, 22, he did nothing. This infuriated Absalom to the point that he killed his brother, Amon. And then he went after his father, starting a rebellion. And when David heard Absalom was coming, he abdicated the throne and he went off. And that was then that he decided he needed to turn to God in prayer. Oswald Chambers said this, in my utmost for his highest, you can see this on the screen. We tend to think that if Jesus Christ compels us to do something and we are obedient to him, he will lead us to great success. We should never have the thought that our dreams of success are God's purpose for us. In fact, his purpose may be exactly the opposite. We have the idea that God is leading us toward a particular end or desired goal, but he is not. The question of whether or not we arrive at a particular goal is of little importance and reaching it becomes merely an episode along the way. And here's the key phrase. What we see as only the process of reaching a particular end, God sees as the goal itself. It's the process. It's the making us into the image of Christ, little by little, little by little, chipping off a little dross, a little waste every day to reveal more and more of his son. And at the end, you got to remember that we are all indispensable. You know, I reminded Scott Schaefer when I first uh, came here, many of you know Scott Schaefer, Quad City Prayer Center and worship leader at uh, Heritage for many years. And one of the things he told us pastors is just remember this, that God's already preparing the next person to take your place as you step into that pulpit. We're not indispensable. We're part of the chain. We pass the baton on. And we're in process. And God is the one ultimately who is fulfilling his kingdom work. The fourth one, trust our heart for the answers of life. 
Trust our heart for the answers of life. This is a huge mantra in our world today. Listen to the music of the day. Listen to the philosophies of this day. Our heart, our seat of emotions, which are affected by the fall, we'll talk more about this week, is to be the only focus for our decision-making and moral choices in life, the world says. Our happiness is what is to be our extreme and ultimate and supreme purpose in life. I don't know, four or five months ago, I went over to Sam's Club, and I wanted to buy some books for my grandsons. And they're here this weekend, actually. And, uh, you know, I pulled out these books, and I began to read to them, not looking at the titles. Now, listen, I'm not saying we should boycott Disney. Don't get wrong with that. My grandsons love Toy Story and Cars, and they would disown their grandfather if I said that. But I'm saying you need to understand what some of these things are teaching. So, you know, as I looked at this Buzz Lightyear is, year is saying in his book, listen to your inner voice. Bo Peep says, be your own shepherd. Sporky says, throw your worries away. And Woody says, follow your heart. Follow your heart. And if I took time to read these, you'd be amazed at the message it's saying is that it's all about you and yourself. And you can solve everything in this life if you do it yourself. Well, we came into this world with a damaged soul, a depraved mind, bent toward becoming, in our own way, selfish, and we think we're little gods. Man left to himself will try to do what he wants and gravitate to happiness and comfort and to stay being right in the broken logic as he views the world, relationships, and experiences, and the afterlife. Christians, we have intellect to reason. We have emotions that make us human, but they all need to be surrounded and surrendered to God and to the Holy Spirit to let that control our thought processes. So the application here is may we identify the false thoughts in our minds and be willing to deal with them with God's help. May we identify the false thoughts in our minds and be willing to deal with them with God's help. It's not enough to see the counterfeit truths that we entertain in our mind that we entertain and think about, but we must deal with them within God's reality. So we see the last point today, the main point is the power of thinking as God would have us think. I'm just going to give you three today, and we'll talk more about this next week. The power of thinking as God would have us to think. First of all, we behave as a result of what we think. I don't know if you think about that, but Proverbs 23, 7 and the King Jimmy Version, King James Version says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. We are who we think we are. You know, when I teach students on the first day of class at Scott Community College in world religions, we talk about uh, worldview. And I'd say 80% of my students have never even heard of that term. And I define worldview after we have a discussion as this. It is how one views life and lives out those beliefs. And I say it's more about how you live what you believe than what you say that you believe. Because how you live is really a reflection of how you think. And so, so many people say well, they believe X, Y, and Z, but they don't do X, Y, and Z. Actions speak much, much louder than words. Kids catch more from watching their parents' behavior than what is intentionally taught to them. You know, young people, they can spot a hypocrite very quickly. If you work with upper elementary, junior high especially, 
And high school kids, you better have a solid self-image. You better be walking the talk. I was a youth pastor for 18 years. And they can spot your inconsistencies, inconsistencies in a moment, easily. And so we have to be able to walk our talk to match what we say. I say all that to point out that we have to focus on our minds. And at some point, we'll be witnessed in our behavior how we think. And what I think becomes what I do. Second sub-point, we must allow God to transform our mind. God allow God to do the transforming. <clears throat> I was thinking this week, when I became a Christian at age 14, and how quickly there was a line of demarcation of how I used to think before I was 14 and how I thought afterward as a Christian. And I look back and I think I was a totally different person as that rebellious teenager than I am today. Because of transformation. That word transformation in Romans 12 too is a Greek word, metamorpho, metamorphosis. And there's a picture on the screen of what happens in metamorphosis, right? A caterpillar eventually wraps itself up with a cocoon, sheds its skin and becomes a beautiful butterfly. And why does it do that? Because it's part of their DNA. It's part of who they are. Well, part of the DNA in us with the Holy Spirit is that we are to be change agents, change agents. We have a tendency as a new believer to see God change us in dramatic ways early in our Christian life. At least I saw that in my life. But as we grow older, we either do not want to make changes or we give up and feel that we cannot make changes. So here's a shameless plug for WDLM Moody Radio. Jeremy's back there. Moody Radio from the word to life. Right, Jeremy? And it says uh, Chip Ingram, he's on 8.30. He's doing a great study Monday through Friday about, yes, you can change and how you can change your Christian life and overcome any habitual sin that you face. 1 John 3.2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. For we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So let your thinking be on the fact that God can change us. Don't give up surrendering and fighting the battle every day with the flesh and Satan to bring about God's desired change in your life. It begins with our thoughts. So how do we allow God and our thoughts to change our thinking? Well, the last sub-point here is this, that we need to think through the filter of God's word. And I'm going to give you some very practical ways to do that. So you can take these with you this week and begin to practice them. We need to think through the filter of God's word. And it's all rooted on, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Now, we have to discipline our mind to think godly thoughts. Now, I don't mean that we have to think about God every minute of the day. But what I've seen over time as I implant God's word in my life and as I memorize it, when I face decisions, it becomes second nature to think God's thoughts. Should I really buy that Mercedes? Man, maybe I could afford it. But maybe I should buy something of lesser value so I could be generous to help other people out with the money that I would save from that. 
And it's viewing things from the perspective of the values that we've implanted into our lives. Here are six questions to ask us to think about. Your money, your relationships, and even how you spend your day. Here are six filters to bring every thought and decision through your mind. And I don't have this on your outline, so if you want to write these down, if there's space, here's six questions to think about. Is this thought based on God's truth and not man's interpretation of truth? Man, that's a great filter to start with. As we watch the news, whether it's Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, OAN, you continue the list. Are these thoughts based on God's truth or man's interpretation of truth? John 17, 17, Jesus said, thy word is truth. Second of all, is this thought worthy of respect? Is this thought worthy of respect? Thinking about Philippians 4.8. Going through the filter of those terms. Is this thought worthy of respect? Number three, is this thought something God would totally approve of? Are your thoughts rated G for God approved? Something to think about. Is this thought something God would totally approve of? And so we have to ponder these things. I hope you have those, but if you don't, I can give them to you. Number four, is there any hint of sin mixed in with this thought? Is there any hint of sin mixed in with this thought? These are good parameters, boundaries to discipline your thinking. Number five, does this thought put a smile on God's face? That's a good one to think about. Would he be pleased with the choices or the decision that I'm going to make? And lastly, does this thought bring honor to God? We talked about magnify, glorify, respect, revere. Does this thought bring honor to God? The one who authored this is Steve Etner. I heard him last week at the Iron Sharpens Iron Conference, and he concluded with this. After he gave out these six questions, he says, if you use this pattern to capture every thought, my life will be based on God's truth, worthy of respect, approved by God, will have no hint of sin, will put a smile on God's face and point others to Christ. So if you get these right... It goes a long way to having God's thoughts, which influence, influences our behavior. The application here is that may God's word be the lens through which you and I filter our thoughts this week as we go out. May that be the filter. And the key thought here is that we have the ability to glorify God through our thoughts if we discipline our minds. I don't know about you, but that sometimes that's where I get lazy. That's where I let down. I don't discipline my mind. I remember those days, and I wish I would get back to them, that our senior pastor I served under in uh, Kankakee, he was there um, nine years, and I was the youth pastor eight of those nine years. And every Tuesday, we gathered, and we memorized Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, the whole book of Philippians, the whole book of Ephesians, and we were in James when he moved on to Xenia, Ohio. And every Tuesday, we would sit down and part of our meeting, we would quiz each other on those verses. And boy, the discipline in my mind that I had. But you need somebody to have an accountability partner with to do that, 
to discipline your mind. I close with this. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest evangelists of yesteryear, he wrote, I think I may say to every person whom I'm addressing, if you are yourself saved, the work is but half done until you're employed to bring others to Christ. You're as yet but half formed in the image of your Lord. You have not attained to the full development of the Christ life in you unless you've commenced in some feeble way to tell others of the grace of God. And I trust that you will find no rest of the sole of your foot until you have been the means of leading many to that blessed Savior who is your confidence and your hope. And then he concludes that writing by saying, let us ask God to give us grace to go fishing. And so to cast our nets that we may take a great multitude of fishes. Oh, that the Holy Ghost may raise up from among us some master fishers who shall sail their boats in many a sea and surround a great shoals of fish. Think about these questions as we go today. How can God transform your thinking this week? How can you be more heavenly minded this week? And are you sensing you are where God wants you to be this week in your walk and your place with him? Let's bow for prayer. So as we pray today, maybe your prayer is like mine. God, help me to be more disciplined to think your thoughts this week. And take some steps this week to make that happen. Take some baby steps. Maybe it's just memorizing one verse. Maybe it's just deciding with your spouse that we're going to work on memory verses together. Or maybe just to pray together before we go out and start our day. Whatever it may be, make a commitment to do something that would help discipline your mind and transform your thoughts to be more like God's thoughts. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the power that's in it. We thank you that while history changes all the time, while you have people around the world who are persecuted and only have pages of scripture, that your word helps them to sustain their faith. And Lord, we just think about how, how no matter where we are, no matter what kind of a cultural setting we're in, no matter if it's good or bad, Lord, the anchor is your word and how to think those thoughts. I just think of many of these epistles that Paul wrote from a Roman prison during a time of Nero and severe persecution. He said, I've learned to be content. Lord, help us. Help us to learn that no matter what state we're in, because we have the mind of Christ to be able to thrive and not just survive, not just to get by, but Lord, to have your thought process as we go through our days. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.